text is based off of uh, Jude 11, and if you want to turn, I'm just going to read Jude 11 for you. You don't need to stand up. It's one verse here, and it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And again, we've been considering these, and we've come to this third account now, and the account of Korah and his collaborators is one of the most classic Old Testament examples of how wicked, ambitious men infiltrate into places of influence among God's people. And ultimately, that's what apostates do. They infiltrate their way into the presence, into, the, into participating and having influence over God's people. Such persons are unable to see how they are not every bit as good as God's appropriately appointed uh, spiritual leaders. Korah's going to have a problem with Moses' position. And he's going to say, in a sense, why do I not get to be in a position like that? Such men seek to turn God's service into a secular profession uh, uh, by which anyone is qualified regardless of God's standards. And, and we see it today. There are men in the, in the pulpits that have no business being in the pulpit at all because they've turned the pulpit into a, a secular profession rather than a sacred duty. Sadly, according then to, to the testimony of Jude, as well as to our own experience in church history, even up into the present age, the church is full of men like Korah. And we, we see some explicit examples we could give you, uh, but the Old Testament picture here of such men is found in this account of Korah and his supporters, and it's in these two chapters, number 16 through 17. We'll kind of read as we go along because it would take a long time to read the text by itself, but I find it significant that the Word of God devotes two entire chapters in this account, and to me that emphasizes the significance and importance of this apostasy and brings justification for Jude's use of it as an example of the way in which apostasy or falling away from the Lord works. See, the issue is that Korah and men like that are still present, and they have crept into the church and are often unnoticed until all of a sudden we realize there's a problem. And so we have a lot of ground to cover. So again, if you've not already turned in your Bibles, do so to number 16, and we're going to uh, consider a number of points uh, this morning. Uh, hopefully we can get through all that I would like to this morning, but we'll see. I don't want to see glazed eyes. If you need to get up and do a jumping jack or something, that's just one. You can do that. All right. So let's consider now uh, the example of Korah's rebellion by beginning with what we'll see as presumption, presumption in number 16, verses 1 through 3. Let me read the text for you. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelath, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so we find here this attack on Moses and Aaron, who are God's two divinely appointed leaders for the congregation of Israel uh, being attacked. <coughs> and they're attacked along two lines. One is sacred and one is secular. But let's begin with the source of this rebellion. The leader of the attack along the sacred lines was a man by the name of Korah, who traded upon a special relationship being the first cousin of Moses. He's related to Moses being a Levite. There is a saying that familiarity can breed contempt, and such was certainly true in this particular account. Korah considered himself every bit as good, every bit as righteous, every bit as qualified, every bit as important as Moses. Although, if truth be told, no one would have ever known about Korah except that Moses had been called and used by the Lord to bring the people up out of Egypt. Before that, Korah was a nobody. 
It was only because he was, he was a family member of Moses that he could begin to make this kind of accusation. And it reminds us that just because people are related does not mean that they are equal in personality or gifts or abilities or achievements. Yet Korah thought so. Korah thought if Moses can do this, then I should be able to do this. Well, what were the sacred duties? Korah defends his attack based upon his supposed special rank. Notice this. He's of the tribe of Levi. He had been fully consecrated to serve God full-time as recorded in Numbers chapter 3, verses, verse 12. And he had been given special charge over the, uh, art, uh, over the tabernacle. This was special recognition. I mean, to be one of the people that get to handle the very utensils and, and pieces of the tabernacle itself. Uh, I mean, I think some of us might consider that be a pretty cool position. Except that Korah let that go to his head. He, had taken, he was taken in by the sense of his own self-worth, as we'll see, his own importance. He could not see why he could not be a priest. He wanted to serve like Aaron or Moses, and he was not called to be a priest. After all, he was of the family of the Kohath, uh, of Kohath and therefore he was one of the chief Levites. The handling of the most sacred objects of the tabernacle was given by God uh, to the charge of the Kohathites, according to Numbers 3. So he starts thinking, well, I'm a Levite, and I got a special call, so why can't I be like a priest like Moses? I mean, it's priests like Aaron. I mean, who is Aaron anyway? Who is Aaron? What right did Aaron have to be Israel's high priest? These are the kind of thoughts that we'll see are coming on to Aaron, uh, to uh, Korah's thinking. So the secular duties, many within the tribe of Reuben, when, uh, when Korah starts calling up this rebellion, there were those within the tribe of Ju uh, Reuben who were quick to fan the flames of Korah's rebellion. The tribe of Reuben pitched their tents near the Kohathites. Reuben occupied a key position in the center of three tribes. If you remember how they're situated, they were in the center of the three tribes on the south side of the tabernacle, along with Simeon and Gad. Also, when the camp formed to march, when they would go out to battle, guess who got to go out first, which was considered a privilege? It was the tribe of Reuben. So they considered themselves more important. Are you more important because you were the ones that get to go first in the battle? You know, I always wondered about the guys that want to go first in the battle anyway. Like, let me hang out and see what's going to happen. I don't know. It takes all kinds, I guess. But the Reubenites, uh, interestingly, were deeply resented the fact that uh, the rights of the firstborn, because they were firstborn, had, been, had gone to Judah and had been given to Joseph because of Reuben's sin, if you recall the account in Genesis. Such a demotion disgruntled many of the Reubenites, and they held that against their brothers. Therefore, that the members of this tribe were eager to join in now a rebellion that would usurp Levi, the sons of Levi, other uh, 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 Moses and Aaron, they considered that to be uh, important because their dignity had been slighted and their importance was undermined. Reuben's self-pride and inflated sense of self-worth they were able, caused them to be able to raise up, you read it, 250, it says leaders, notice what it says there in verse 2, leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, so these are men that have been recognized, and they are men of renown. So these are influential people. These are the kind of people that you would generally think you want to have them on your team because they get things done. They, 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 they are the kind of people that move things. The, the leaders of Reuben regarded themselves then as being more important figures than of Moses, who according to Scripture was known for not his pride and not his arrogance and not his sense of self-worth. But even with all that we know about Moses... Moses was given, he was known for what? His meekness, according to the Bible. And Aaron, who was known for his weakness. So you have Moses, who's meek, and Aaron, who's weak, and now these men of renown are like, these guys, who would choose these guys? These are losers. Except they're forgetting who chose these particular men. So that's kind of what's taking place here. It was God who appointed Moses and Aaron to be leaders. And uh, uh, 
and Korah and the Reubenites were taking issue with that. Two other men are mentioned here, that of Dathan and Abiram. They were brothers. Led, they led the Reubenites to, uh, to support Korah and his rebellion. These three men were the ringleaders. They were men of renown. They were able to persuade others to support them. The bottom line is this. Apostates are adept at finding those they can influence others to support them in their ungodly ways. And that's one of the reasons why you'll hear uh, from pulpits, I've said it from this pulpit before, that if it's something that mainstream Christianity is doing, it's probably best to avoid it. Because we've seen so many of the denominations just get pulled away, fall away from God, because they've got a group of people, men of renown, who have influenced uh, the pulpits and influence the seminaries and they pulling, they're pulling people away. Well, that's the, the source of the rebellion of these three men. Let's look at the force of the rebellion, verses 2 and 3. First, we're told in verse 2 that these men rose up before Moses. Again, they were backed by the support of the congregation. Some 250 assembled leaders, these men of ren renown, you know, I find it interesting, one of the principles here is that apostasy tends to depend heavily upon numbers and strength of its supporters. The, again, apostates are always able to find men of renown to join them. Here it does as well to remember that human renown and recognition is generally the enemy of divine revelation. I don't care how many dots and titles and and uh, initials you have after your name, if it's not in accordance with the word of God, then I don't have any, any uh, uh, desire for it. And yet, they'll find those kinds of men. Apostates have a long list of famous people on their side. And the problem is, they forget that things like worldly scholarship and social position and human reputation, not one of those things ever impresses God. But we get impressed by it. We get taken in by it. And we can follow a person on, on the radio or on a podcast just because, well, they've got a lot of people that follow them. And we need to be careful. I'm obviously not saying anybody that has a podcast. I don't have a podcast yet, so I'm safe. But uh, anyway, in verse 3, we find something interesting as well because verse 2 says they rose up before Moses. Verse 3, it says that these men were against Moses and Aaron. And just think about that statement for a moment. I mean, we have the, the hindsight. We can look back and we know what's going to happen in this story, the rebellion and everything. But can you imagine going up against Moses and Aaron? I try to get my head wrapped around it. These men were against the man whom God used to bring them salvation and communicate to them that salvation would come as they shed the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorpost, and it came about. They were against Aaron, the man who represented them before the very presence of God, who had offered sacrifices and went into the most holy place where he could have been destroyed if he had not done that correctly, but he was accepted by God, and now they're wanting to be against Moses and against Aaron. This, these are the two men that these men were against, Moses the prophet and Aaron the priest. And I try to fit, get my head wrapped around that. Secondly, we're told that in verse 3, they begin their whole rebellion by making a false accusation. Isn't that the way it works? They say something that's just not quite true, and that's what you see in verse 3. Notice what they say. You, Moses and Aaron... You have gone far enough, so why exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? You think you're all high and mighty. You think you have a right to do all of these things, but you're putting yourself above the congregation of Israel as though you're something special. But I wonder if you really stop to think about their statement. By any stretch of the imagination, how could you say Moses went too far? L let me remind you he never intended to be the redeemer of Israel he knew that was God's work when God first called him Moses made no less than five excuses as to why he couldn't do it 
he tried to get out of this responsibility. It was not until the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses that he finally consented to do what God had called him to do in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Just before Korah's rebellion, Moses had appointed 70 elders and delegated much authority to them. That was in Numbers 11. Aaron anoint, uh, Aaron's anointing as high priest, that came from God. Moses didn't say, hey, I'm going to show some nepotism and make Aaron the high priest. No, God anoints him. God calls him to be the high priest. Although both Moses and Aaron in later scriptures and in heaven are given high honors, their task on earth was one of the most difficult and I would say thankless jobs anybody could have ever had. You know, trying to manage two to three million uh, Israelites. Uh, what is the saying? You know, it, it's be like trying to herd cats. They're just scattering everywhere and trying to keep everybody in line. Just the practical side of it, much less the, the spiritual side of it, I would not have envied the job. The accusation was that they had somehow now pushed themselves into positions which they now occupied. That was a false accusation. Korah, Dathan, and Abraham were the ones who were pushing themselves into position. And it reminds me of this, and we've seen so much of this over the last two years. I know it's always, uh, always true, but they are accusing Moses and Aaron of doing that which they themselves are doing. So they're accusing, you have pushed yourself into the position when they're the ones that are trying to push themselves into the position. They're trying to push themselves into that to which they were not called. They're trying to usurp what God's order had been. They were unqualified. They were unsuited for the task. But not only did they make a false accusation, they made a false assertion. Notice again in verse 3 of the statement. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. For all the congregation are holy. This, now, just, I just want you to think about it. Doesn't that sound okay? All the congregation is holy, and God, I mean, the Shekinah glory is here. God's presence in their midst. Are they right? Is this true? This is how assertions are typically uh, formulated by apostates. They mix some truth with error. The truth of the matter was not all the congregation was holy. We have plenty of examples in that all the, not all the congregation of Israel was, was holy. Uh, it's interesting, the truth of the matter is that many of them had not participated in the feast of the Passover. The rebels and their supporters also were not holy. These rebellious men had no concept of either the sinfulness of man or of the holiness of God. That God was in their midst was a tribute to God's grace and mercy, not attributable to the fact that they were there. You see how this is an exaltation of themselves. We're so good that God's in our midst. No, you should be dead because God's here. We should all be dead, but God's grace and mercy is taking care of us. And it reminds us that just because someone makes a profession of Christ, it doesn't mean that they're in Christ. Positional sanctification, the truth that all those who truly believe on Jesus Christ are holy because, Christ, uh, because of Christ is not the same thing as what we call practical sanctification. That those who possess that position now seek to practice Christ-likeness in their lives. If you're not living the life, there is no way you can say for certain that you are right with God. And just because these men were part of Israel did not make them holy. And the way that they lived their lives, as demonstrated in these texts, does, uh, reveals that they're not holy. And just because then somebody goes to church does not make them holy. And many people's lives demonstrate that they're not holy. Therefore, the assertion that all the congregation was holy was a false, was false. And so that's the presumption. In verses 4 through 7, we find a proposition being made. In verse 4, there's something interesting. Moses does not engage in an argument with the rebels. Well, what would be your first? Here's somebody makes a false accusation against you, and what's your first inclination? That is not so. And let me tell you why. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You're so wrong. He doesn't enter into an, an, uh, an argument with the rebels. He doesn't send Joshua. Who's Joshua? His military commander. 
Just go and smite them for me, bunch of losers. What do we read? Verse 4. When Moses heard this, this false accusation and this false assumption, what does he do? He falls on his face. He goes to God in prayer first. Why did Moses do this? He could have puffed up. He could have asserted his authority. I'm the man of God. You'll listen to me. I'm reminded of John the Baptist when he made the statement in John 3.30. He must increase, he says. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. You know, Moses understood that principle. The best thing that we can do when somebody is being contrary to what God has established and what God has said is get out of the way and let God, let God be seen. And boy, Moses got out of the way. Falling to his face, we're going to find that he leaves Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their 250 men of renown not to be face-to-face with Moses because he's on his face, but to come face-to-face with the living God. We find Moses allowing God to fight the battles. And how was this God's battle? Well, Moses was God's man. God had placed him where God had put him, and Moses was doing what God had called him to do. If others did not like it, well... Let them speak to the one who's in charge. And it wasn't Moses. It was God. Moses practices some wisdom, and he presents these three men with a proposition in verse 5. Notice what he says in verse 5. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring himself near to him, bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring to himself. That's quite the statement. You'd have to know that you're on the right side to be able to make that statement, right? I know with certainty what God has called me to do. I know the word of God. So let's just have this little test, and we'll let God tell us what's going to, what's right and what's up. Moses refuses to engage in an argument, referring the rebels then to the Lord. He said, I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm going to let the Lord decide this matter. And so, in effect, he says, you're going to find out tomorrow, buddy, who's who, who's who's, and what's what. I do not know this. I'm reading into the text. But you would think that Korah and his, com- and, and his comrades might have had a sleepless night. As they had to rehearse all that was going to happen the next day, haunted by the thoughts of this awesome might and and majesty of the Lord, these men might have been considering the miracles that God had wrought through who? Moses. That God had done through all of the wanderings. They, They had seen the truth. They had known the truth. But in their blindness now, they're rejecting it. Why? Well, because they've fallen away from the Lord. In verse 6 and 7, Moses tells these men to bring their censers and their fire and their incense when they come to the meeting. Again, this should uh, have been enough to cause them pause. Why? There's not one person in the entire congregation of Israel who did not know what had happened to Aaron's sons when they brought their censers and their fire and their incense They were consecrated properly as priests, and yet they brought strange fire. And what happened to them? Poof, they're gone. That's in Leviticus 10. Korah and his followers were about to engage in something quite similar. Rather than the accusation made, you have gone too far or gone far enough, Moses. Moses could have legitimately turned around and argued with them and said, no, my friends, You have gone too far, and tomorrow you will find out. That brings us to verses 8 through 11 in a perspective here. Verses 8 through 11, Moses does seek to reason with his cousin. He wants Korah to get this. And so he says in verse 9, Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel 
to bring you near to himself, to do service, do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. Isn't, isn't that an amazing statement? You've already been distinguished. You already have a service that's been granted to you by God. And now you want more. He actually says, asks the question in verse 10, saying, are you seeking the, for the priesthood also? You, this isn't enough for you. Can you imagine to say to God, it's not enough? God, it's just not enough. I don't think you have appreciated my talents and my abilities or my ambitions. And you need to get to it. All of this reminds us that there's no place for carnal ambition in the Lord's work. It would be a sin for me to envy the man who has a bigger pulpit. I don't mean just in size, but you're working on it, right? Bigger pulpit. It would be a sin to, to envy the author who has published many popular books. It would be a sin to envy the soloist who sings at all the big events. Korah's rebellious group had an improper understanding, though, of what is the bigness of what is bigness and what is littleness. May I remind you something? There, if God is in it, there's nothing little. And, and I know this, I, I hope this is okay to say, I know this to be, be true. You know, there's nothing little about serving in the nursery. And I know those who served in the nursery today, there's nothing little in it for them. They see the bigness in it. They do see little people, but they see a big God. I appreciate that. God was able to use a burning bush to capture the attention of Moses. Little? A bush? Wouldn't you use, if you were God, wouldn't you use something else than a bush? God used a little shepherd boy with a sling and some rocks to slay a giant. Really? God used a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people. But beloved, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no such thing as bigness or littleness to God who is infinite. I mean, technically, everything's little to him, and he's what makes things big at all. The nursery worker who receives the young child into the nursery, who makes the child's experience in the house of God a joy and a pleasant one. That's just as important a chain in the link as the most eloquent of evangelists or the most persistent of preachers. Because years later, when that child comes to know Jesus Christ, they will have played a part in seeing that child come to faith who of us is to say what is big or little in God's economy not any of us we do not have all the facts we didn't we don't have all the numbers to plug into the equation of of God's purposes as for the Levites they are calling uh, the, they are calling what was significant in the sight of God as the calling of Aaron and Moses they're saying you know what we've been called to uh, we should be that's the bigness that we should get, forgetting that what they had been called to was just as important. So Moses is trying to explain all of this, but have you ever tried to explain gospel truths to somebody who is just absolutely vehemently against it? It's like banging your head against the wall. And Moses comes to understand that he cannot get his deluded cousin to understand these things. Verse 11, Moses makes a very profound statement. While they, are initially, while they initially rose up against Moses, remember that? They rose up and they were against Moses and Aaron. We saw that. Uh, Moses says to them in verse 11 that they are gathered together against who? The Lord. I can't imagine. It was bad enough to go against God's chosen men, but now Moses says, don't worry about the chosen men. You have gone up against God himself. I cannot imagine a more terrible place to be. Korah and his crew were challenging the creator of the universe. The angels in the realms of glory 
hung upon his words and rushed to do his will. Yet Korah and his followers were gathered against the Lord. What foolishness, what folly. What a delusional state to find yourself in. And yet, liberal and progressive pastors and theologians and outright apostates are those who have gathered together against the Lord, exhibiting the same attitude as Korah in the church today. Even Moses' statement about Aaron is insightful, isn't it, when he asks there, but as for Aaron, who is he that you would grumble against him? Now, depending on me, you could have been Aaron and think, wow, did he just slight me? Uh, right? But as for Aaron, who is he that you would grumble against him? What is Moses saying? You want to talk to me about Aaron? You want to talk to me about Aaron? What is he? What is Aaron? He's nothing in himself. You're going after all of this position and title and recognition, and you're thinking that it's wrapped up in a person. No, it came from God, and you can talk to God about it. This has nothing to do with the man Moses or nothing to do with Aaron. He's nothing in himself. But what makes Aaron something is he's doing what God has chosen him to do. He's been called as Israel's high priest. He's an instrument in God's hand, and he did not take that upon himself. They had completely the wrong perspective. Well, it brings us to verses 16, or uh, verses 12 through 15, and we see some persistence here, some persistence. Beginning in verse 12, Moses makes a demand of these heretics, and he says, you're going to come before me. Yet they refused to come. Why would they not come? Moses says, you're going to come and appear before me. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. Could it have been that they were fearful now? Why would they be fearful? Well, as of yet, all they had been able to uh, drum up by way of support is from one tribe. It's just from Reuben. How many tribes are there? There's 12. And you've got a couple of Levites and 250 Reubenites and yeah, they're men of renown, but that's all you've got so far. Also, upon reflection, they could not deny that Moses had done had some uh, rather unique and awesome powers. He's done things that we've never seen any other men do. And now he says, come and, and appear before me. What is he going to do, throw his rod and have a snake eat us? or what? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why you could be a little concerned about this. Not one person who had ever traveled with Moses could deny any of, the, any of these truths. It could have been, however, not that they were afraid of Moses, but they were so far gone in their apostasy that they are simply asserting their own independence. They're like, I do not recognize your authority, Moses, anymore. And they are persistent in this. They had no intention of yielding to Moses now. They were digging in. They were doubling down. And this is true of apostates. Once an apostate has displayed his true colors, he refuses to yield and seeks to defy God's appointed leaders. Such men tend to entrench themselves deeper and deeper in their sin. In verses 13 and 14, I'd have you notice that they actually begin to mock Moses. So this is God's man, and they mock Moses. Notice what they say. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey uh, to have us die in the wilderness? But would you also lord it over us? Did I read that correctly? My notes were. Okay, I got it. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness but you would also lord it over us. Now, there is, this is called dripping sarcasm. And it's so full of lies. Did you catch them? What are the lies that are in here? What is sickening about the statement that they made is that they're using this phraseology of a land flowing with milk and honey in reference not to the promised land, but to Egypt. Yeah, it was God who called the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Moses would later describe the promised land to Israel with this phraseology in Exodus 13. Even the spies, including the, two, the, the, uh, the cowardly ones, had described the promised land with this language in Numbers 13, 27, that God is taking you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb used this phraseology in order to encourage the people to go in and take the land just a couple of chapters before in Numbers 14. We can go. We can take the land. God's with us. Let's go into the land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua later would use the same phraseology when preparing to cross over the Jordan River as they're ready to take conquest of the land. And, and he uses the same phraseology. And then many years later, Jeremiah the prophet uses these words in lamenting Israel's broken covenant in Jeremiah 11.5. Ezekiel, the prophet, would describe the land this way as a land flowing with milk and honey as the armies of Babylon stood poised to destroy Jerusalem in Ezekiel 20. This core, I can't believe you are describing Egypt with the same terminology as God describes the promised land. For Korah, Dathan, and Abram to apply this description to Egypt rather than to Canaan is not only an indication of bitter sarcasm, but it's their utter disbelief. They are simply not believers. They thought Egypt was better than what God had promised them. To them, the promised land was a myth. It was a fairy tale. Egypt, which in the Bible always represents a type of evil, was their loved and fondly remembered reality. They were ready to go back. If they had been able to usurp Moses and Aaron, we might not have had the story. They might have marched everybody right back to Egypt, to the supposed land of milk and honey. This is typical of apostates. They love the former manner of life rather than what's new in Jesus Christ. Not only did these men mock Moses, but they also maligned him. They were demonizing him. And don't we see that happen that, as well? They accuse him not only of, of uh, not taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey, but they also accuse him of wanting to be a lord or a prince over them. In asking him if he would lord it over them, they were accusing him of having ambitions to be what? To be a king interesting because you have Moses the prophet you have Aaron the priest and now they're accusing him of being wanting to be a king those guys know that Moses and Aaron knew there's only only be one that would be able to fulfill the three offices of that and that would be the coming of, of the Messiah talk about twisting the narrative as they suggest that the wilderness wanderings were actually part of a clever plot devised by Moses to force the people to crown him to be king can you imagine? You read the story. Do you ever get that out of the out of the account? No, but they're twisting everything. We see that taking place today where you look at the facts and you're like, how did you get that out of the facts? Moses was conspiring to be king and to lead them into the promised land. In verse 14, they accused Moses of having lied to them, that Moses had not brought them into the land of blessing. I mean, so think about the facts for just a moment. Some 38 years, what have you been doing? Wandering aimlessly in the desert, right? Wandered, and now they're seeking to blame Moses, claiming that he was either self, a self-seeking opportunist or a religious failure. And again, that's what apostates do. They try to, to look, hey, you know, if you've done it this way and you're trying to, you're saying you're following the Bible, but it doesn't get the results, look at the results we have. Well, yeah, but your ways are not according to Scripture. Well, it doesn't matter. God's blessing it. You heard that one before? If God's blessing it, then it must be right. Not if it's violating God's principles. Their final insult is found at the end of verse 14 when they ask the question, would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So what, the, what are they saying with that statement? They might have a little bit of fear of, of, of what Moses could do. 
but now they're putting it on public record. They're saying, will you put out the eyes of these men? That is the practice. The putting out of the eyes of one's enemy was the practice of pagan kings' revenge upon their enemies. They would capture the leaders and gouge out their eyes, and they'd have to live the rest of their lives as blind people. They certainly, these men, did not understand Moses. Why would Moses need to put their eyes out anyway? Moses is saying, you guys are already spiritually blind. It's not going to do anything for me to do such a, a wicked thing to you. Almost, uh, again, this is a typical reaction of the way apostates distort the truth to spin the narrative. But in the end, they make their rebellion quite plain, don't they? they? They open it up by saying that we will not come up. They are openly and publicly now disobeying a direct command of Moses, who is God's man. These heretics have no intention whatsoever then of submitting to God's authority. And uh, sorry, just thinking about submitting to God's authority. If, if we give up the Bible, we have nothing. What Moses is standing on is what God had communicated to Moses. It was God's word. And when we begin to try to win the, the, the people, win folks to Christ, you cannot lay down the word of God. I heard a great illustration, and the illustration is, imagine for a moment two knights that are going out to do battle. And one has uh, his joust, his lance for the joust, and the other one doesn't. And the one, and they're enemies. And the, the one who doesn't have the, the lance says to the one who does, put down your lance so that we might battle fairly. And if I'm the man with the lance, I say, there's no way I'm putting down my lance. It is my weapon, and I will run you through with it. Well, when believers start trying to uh, work with people and bring them to a knowledge of the truth apart from the word of God. I'm going to use logic. There's a place to use all of that, but you've got to get it right to the word of God because our wisdom and our logic does not lead people to Christ. It is the word of God alone. And Moses understands this fact that it is only the word of God, and he's telling them what God has communicated, and these men are rejecting that authority. They had established a power base that was apart from what God had said, and they would not be dislodged from it just because Moses said, here's your summons. In verse 15, we actually see what ought to be considered as an unusual display on Moses' part. I think sometimes we, we forget that Moses was regarded as the most gentle man on the earth at the time, uh, but uh, it's, it's certainly then out of character for him. Moses had been given the reputation in Numbers 12.3 as the meekest man on earth, and all of this makes his anger in verse 15 all the more significant. These men had now pushed and provoked Moses. And when he gets angry, we can say, wait a minute, why did he, does he have a right to be angry at this point? Beloved, the time had come when even the most peace-loving and amiable of men had to rise up in wrath against the heresies that were being found in this congregation. And so we read, then Moses, notice what the text says. Then Moses became what? Not just angry. He became very angry and said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. I have taken, not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done, any, uh, done harm to any of them. Notice that Moses refers to their, their slanderous accusations. He doesn't defend them, himself against them. He just says, God, you know the truth, so you do what needs to be done in the situation. And that brings us to the presentation in verses 16 through 22. In a sense, the battle lines are drawn. This is it. There's the line in the sand has been drawn. The, the, the two sides are, are clear. Korah and his followers were adamant, and Moses had finally laid aside patience and persuasion and was about to bring swift action. Moses had called the heretics to assemble on the morning before the Lord. He had sought to reason with them, but when they refused to come, the time had come for any discussion and debate to be over. Unbeknownst to Korah, and his crew, it would not be Moses that they faced in the morning. It would be the Lord himself. 
They might refuse to appear before Moses, but they could not fail to appear before the Lord. There is no place left for them to hide. And so we see the gathering of the Levites, verses 16 and 17, verses 16 through 19. There's a description of the gathering of the Levites along with their counterfeit fellowship and their counterfeit fire and everyone who agreed with these heretics. Um, who imagined that these men had some kind of authority from God? And yet many did. Unable to avoid the confrontation, Korah, Dathan, and, and Abram, each with his censer in his hands, they show up. Imagine the scene. The, an, an entire group of apostates gathered in one place each with their appointed ministers, each holding in their hands tangible evidence, these 250 men holding censers in their hands, about to offer some sort of strange fire. Again, we know what happens when people do that. And in verse 19, we read this. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. All the congregation? The implication is that these apostates had been busy all night preparing for the morning. And one of the things they did is they were rallying support with some success so that it could be said that the whole congregation sided with the apostates to take a stand against Moses, the man of God, and Aaron, the high priest. I wonder how these people would have described themselves today. Well, we're the moderates. We're the centrists. We, we, we see the extremes of Moses, and, and so we're, we're trying to bring everybody to, to the middle here. They would describe themselves as the peacemakers, right? But as is the case for all apostates, apart from recognizing and uh, recognizing uh, their error, the church must know that God will deal with them. It's astonishing how many sympathizers Korah and Dathan and Avram were able to drum up. They were so convincing that they easily swayed the worldly thinking rank and file of the congregation. This means that the congregation was without spiritual discernment. These were not, if we put it in New Testament terms, Bereans. They were not examining to see if what, Ab uh, what uh, uh, Korah and, and Dathan and Abram were saying were so. This means that despite of Moses' year-long attempt to teach them the truth of God at Mount Sinai, many didn't believe. And notice what happens. Moses and Aaron find themselves virtually alone at the time of reckoning. Have you ever been in that situation? You know you're on the truth side. There's nobody with you. So what happens? The moment of reckoning comes. You may be by yourself, but you're not by yourself. Because the Lord will be on your side. It's a reminder that apostates are generally experts at working the political machinery whether it be in a church or a seminary or a school or whatever it might be. In verses, at the end of verse 19, there's a profound saying, I wish this is where the break would have been, but look at the end of verse 19. If I could put it in perspective, verse 19 is suddenly interrupted. Verse 19, there's something astonishing and overwhelming that takes place. The Levites had gathered against Moses. They've taken their stand. They're ready to face whatever they think they're about to face. And then it says, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Well, they've seen the glory of the Lord. Not like this. This was different. What we're being told is that God now intervenes. He's entering the scene in order to set everything right. Moses said... Come back tomorrow, and we're going to see who's who's and what's what. 
God intends to set now an example that will cause the congregation of Israel to fear. And it will become an example that will be used for generation after generation after generation until Jude will come along and say, this is what happens to apostates. I cannot help but wonder if initially Korah and his crew thought they were about to be vindicated. Hey, God showed up. Oh, God showed up. All of their display was now being met with the presence of the Lord. That the Lord appeared to them there at the, at the gateway, at the doorway, implies that his glory had moved. Where was his glory typically residing in Israel? In the Holy of Holies. It's being veiled behind that thick veil and being covered by two cherubim. And the glory of the Lord now exits the Holy of Holies and moves to the doorway. And I think probably everybody at this point is trembling. God was no longer on the mercy seat. And there would be no mercy. And the words of the Lord spoke that the Lord spoke were intense as judgment is being proclaimed. Moses and Aaron, notice what it says, they're commanded. God says, get away from those men. Separate yourselves from the congregation because the Lord now intends to, notice what the text says in verse 21, consume them instantly. Now, if you were hearing these words, (laughs) what would you think? Those words must have struck fear in the hearts of the people. Oh, my word, what have we done? This is what apostasy and siding with heretics has brought upon upon the congregation of Israel. And anyone who follows apostates and anyone who is an apostate, you will come face to face with an angry, holy, outraged God who finds you in fellowship with godless apostates. It is the worst possible place to find yourself. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the author of Hebrews would write. But then something extraordinary, Moses and Aaron intervene. Look at verse 22. They're doing this a lot. But they fell on their faces. Why? Well, they said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? They're saying, these these people, they've been deluded and influenced by these apostates. These men, yes, I understand, but please have mercy on the congregation. And as we'll come to see, judgment does not fall upon the entire congregation but not because they don't deserve the judgment, but rather because in grace, God stays off the fullness of his wrath. Moses and Aaron become a picture of Christ. Brings us to verses 23 through 27. Try to wrap up with this. While the Lord is prepared to show mercy upon those who were duped by the apostates, The intercession of Moses and Aaron was of no avail for the apostates themselves. They are beyond hope of redemption, not because God is unwilling to save, but because they are so far gone in their sin that they could not and they would not turn back. We note in verses 23 and 24 a call for a total separation from the apostates. So what had happened? God comes out from behind the veil, and he says, Moses and Aaron, you get over there, because I'm about to consume everything instantly. Moses and Aaron instantly go to the ground, say, oh God, have mercy on the congregation. And now God speaks to the congregation, does he not? And he uh, he speaks through Moses and Aaron, speaks to the congregation saying, get back from, get back 
from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. If you're on their side, if you're behind this line, you come over now because something is about to happen. Notice how God then vindicates and reestablishes the authority that he had given to his two servants. The authority of Moses and Aaron, the authority that the three apostates of this rebellion had despised and disputed. In verses 25 and 26, note with me, he says, Then Moses arose. They rose up against Moses. Now Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. So now notice how quickly he's got people on his side. God shows up and it's like, oh, we were on the wrong side. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch not, touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin." Moses appealing to them once again that, that these men who had sided with Korah, the apostate, and had refused to come to him, is, is Moses is saying to them in verse tw- uh, saying to them, "Get away from them. Get, it, it, even at this point, it could be Dathan, Abraham, if you would come away, you could be saved." In verse 26, he refers to them, however, as wicked men, rasha in the the Hebrew, a word that speaks of the guilty and condemned whose actions and behaviors are demand judgment. But have you noticed that not only were the men condemned, but their property is brought under judgment. Back in Jude 23, there is a command, we haven't come to it yet, that says, have mercy on, uh, on some, have mercy with fear, hating even what? The garment polluted by the flesh. I believe he's keeping this very thing in mind. He knows that everything is going to be under a ban here. The, the, the idea to touch anything, it says in our text, that belonged to them was to become a partaker in their sin. The word for sin in the Hebrew here is katawa, and it means to miss the mark, to stumble or to fall short. Does that sound familiar? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, missed the mark, come up short of the glory of God. Korah imagined himself to be an, an equal to Moses, equal in his position, but this was not God's estimation of him. In God's eyes, Korah had fallen short, and he was a spiritual failure. As the people began to realize what was taking place, they, came, they became thoroughly frightened, and they should have been. We read in verse 27, So they got back. That's just a nice, subtle way of saying they were terrified and they were running for their lives from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the doorway of their tent. So now they're standing outside the tent along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And beloved, this is the most horrifying and overwhelming of incidents. It ought to leave us trembling and sad. These two men, so there's three dwellings, and two of them come out, and they bring their families out to stand with them. And they're in the doorways about to face the judgment of God. And Moses says, come on. Yet these men are too stubborn to move themselves. And they won't even allow their wives and children to go. Can you imagine the look of horror upon the face of the wives? Realizing what was about to happen What a reminder that while we may allow ourselves to depart from the Lord, we may be guilty of taking others along with us in the process. While the text is silent, it would appear that Korah, the instigator, says the two men came out. Where's Korah? He's still in his dwelling. He's hiding or refusing to come out. He may not have bothered to come to the door at all. The whole scene has the sense of impending doom and is now coming over the dwelling places of these three apostates. The separation is now complete. There's a clear space between the rebels, uh, uh, between the rebels of this apostasy and the congregation. A reminder that separation is always God's ultimate answer to apostasy. God calls his people to come out of such things. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 15, we read this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 
Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's God's call. Now, what happens next is one of the most incredible and fearful punishments in all of Scripture. And if you want to hear about it, you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these, these pictures of what was taking place back with Moses as he's dealing with Korah and the rebellion. And ultimately, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave Moses to to keep referring everything back to you, to keep looking to you and depending upon your word. Father, we thank you that the picture shows us some of the characteristics of apostates, but it also reveals the character of the man of God, the one who would separate himself from all that is evil and not touch even the garments that are polluted by the flesh. Father God, may we be such a people. And may we be those who recognize apostasy. May we be those who uh, are able to identify it, but then also to seek to call people out of it. For even these in the congregation of Israel were able to be persuaded uh, when they saw the fullness of the glory of God. May we be demonstrations of the glory of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. May we be presenters of the truth of God so that those who are in doubt may be saved and snatched out of the fire. And so, Father, give us this desire, give us this ability, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well,